0: Six, five, four, three, two, one,
1: zero. All engines running commit flip
0: Good afternoon and welcome to SWAT Radio. It is Thursday, August 10th. As you know, if you're a long-time listener, SWAT Radio uh, every Thursday has guests on. It is our guest day, and I'm excited today to have one of the authors of the book, The Discipleship Gospel, and um, I call it the Kingdom Gospel. They call it the Discipleship Gospel. It's it's both. It's, uh, it's really uh, good to have him join us today, especially since we've been covering this for the last eight weeks, and... I hope that uh, if you're just tuning in to SWAT Radio, then uh, you'll hang on with us today. Because this, this week and next week, we're going to have Ben Sobel's on today. Next week, we're going to have Bill Hull, the two guys that wrote the book, The Discipleship Gospel. And I, I think you will really, one, benefit from being able to hear these guys share some of their insights about why they wrote it, what their their real goal in writing it was, Uh, If you haven't heard anything Brad and I have broadcast over the last eight or nine weeks, then I'm hoping that uh, you can get it encapsulated today from Ben and next week from Bill in a way that will be able to help you. Um, Ben is out in California. He's a pastor at Cypress Church out there, and um, he is a Dallas Theological Seminary grad And uh, I'm excited to have him on. Uh, Ben, welcome to SWAT Radio.
2: Thanks very much, Doug. I really appreciate you having me on, and I'm excited to get into this discussion today.
0: Yeah, and uh, you, just uh, to get this out there, you're married uh, to Joni. You have five children. What are their ages?
2: Yeah, we've got everyone from 34 down to 22. So we've got five kids; they're all, all out of the house right now, living their life, and um, yeah, we're we're busy just trying to keep up with them.
0: Yeah, I, I get that. I get it, man. Uh, that's good. And you you uh, you've been pastoring. Now, were you pastoring at uh, Cyprus uh, back in two thousand and ten? Is that when you started pastoring there?
2: Yeah. So I initially came out to California to be part of a church plant in the year two thousand, and then. Um, started here as the senior pastor at Cyprus in 2010. That's right. So I've been here for 13 years.
0: And uh, you grew up um, in a Bible-based home with a lot of good Bible uh, instruction growing up, right? Well, over in Australia. Then you have a good uh, Christian upbringing over there.
2: No, actually, I didn't. I I grew up in a. I never went to church growing up. I didn't know who Jesus was. My first encounter. Uh, with God was when I was 16 years old, and I had, I was asked to read Psalm 23 at my grandfather's funeral. And midway through it, when I got to the line, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, it just hit me like a brick. And I just felt like that was the first encounter I'd ever had with God, but I didn't know what to do with it because I didn't grow up in a church going home. So uh, I ended up coming to faith when I was 22 years old, uh, in a Baptist church in Dallas, Texas. And that's a whole other story, but, um, <laughs> You know, ended up being in church on Easter Sunday heard the gospel repented believed and started following Jesus at the age of 22
0: well yeah you know, I was I was actually being a little facetious you and I've spoken a little bit and I knew you grew up over there the the gospel has got some hard ground over in Australia doesn't it it's kind of tough
2: yeah it's yeah, I, I, have found that it's real similar to the culture, the culture here in California is very, very similar to where I grew up on the east coast of Australia in the little town called Ballina is where I grew up. And, and, uh, yeah, there's some, there's some pretty hard ground. And if you, generally, if you go to church here in California or over in Australia, uh, you really mean it. There's no, so you don't go to church if, if you're not really a committed Christian. So, um, it's kind of some – I like th- this culture where it's very black and white and, um, and the heart of the ground, it feels like – it seems like that's where God has drawn me to those places.
0: Well, and just a little uh, side note to throw out there. You actually caddied uh, on the PGA Tour, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I, that's what brought me over to the United States when I was 22. A friend of mine um, made it onto the tour, the golf tour over here. And he asked me to come over and caddy for him. We had just both finished college. And uh, so I came over for six months. And it was during that time that he had become a Christian the year before and invited me to the Wednesday night Bible study on the tour. And so I didn't, this is how clueless I was, Doug. I didn't even know that people studied the Bible. Like I had no idea (laughs) why you would want to. Um, And so I just went along out of interest, but then encountered Jesus, Within two months, uh it was Easter Sunday, and I was in church and heard the gospel and that's that's it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I needed to repent of my sin because I was deeply in sin and uh and Jesus changed my life.
0: Well, you know, Ben, when you uh, felt the call to well let me let me back back step a little bit and ask you did you go to seminary to learn more about how to study the Bible and and what the Bible had to say? Or did you feel the call to ministry and you went to seminary to prepare you for that? How how did that transaction take place?
2: Yeah, I I ended up uh, at Dallas Seminary 18 months after I came to Christ. And so really, I was I didn't know what this whole Christian life was all about. All I knew was I had several people in the little church I was a part of. I went back to Australia after caddying on the tour. I was living in Australia in a small town, going to a small church of about 60 people. And within about two months, the pastor had me preach a sermon and um, encouraged me to go to Bible college or seminary. And so I started looking around and and, I had met two guys from Dallas Seminary when I was over here caddying. And I was just so impressed with how they knew the Bible, and I just, I just felt like I really needed to know the Bible like those guys. And so I applied to the Dallas Seminary. They let me in, uh, which was a shock to me. But they let me in, and um, and I, I, I re- I'm really thankful for my education there. They really, I, Dallas Seminary does a lot of things right, and one of the things they do do very right is teach. Uh, students how to teach the Bible, and, and uh, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah,
0: I had the benefit when we lived out there of being able to spend some time with Howard Hendricks and uh, also John Hanna, who were two professors there that were just, they're really solid guys, and uh, so I, I, I know that you probably experienced some of their some of their teaching if you were there uh, uh, out, at, out at Dallas. Did you have Dr. Hanna for anything?
2: I did. I had him for multiple classes. He uh, he taught, He made me love church history. No, I'd never liked history before, but uh, Dr. John Hanna made me love uh, learning church history, which was quite a feat.
0: Yeah, yeah he, he's a great guy. Well, you know, so fast forward a little bit, you go to DTS and uh, you, you come out of that and I take it that's what brought you to California when you graduated to be part of a church plan. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I built a relationship with a pastor in Dallas who came out to plant a church here in California, and I, I just knew I wasn't ready to lead lead a church uh, after just several years of being a believer, basically, um, so I wanted to come in and be mentored by him, uh, and so I asked if he needed any help at all, and so he said we could use some children's ministry and youth ministry help, and so I came out here initially to California to, to help him plant that church, and um, and so it was basically through relationships that I'd built with, with this pastor and his family uh, that brought me out here, in, uh, you know, in 2000 to um, be part of this church plant.
0: Well, one of the questions when I saw where you went to school, and, and you know, you, you would, I, I, I believe, have to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of times when you tell somebody you went to such and such school whether it's Dallas or whether it's Westminster or wherever a the reform then you you typically get a good idea what kind of theology is taught at that place right i mean for the most part you're going to know uh, that there's there's people that go there and they they teach all the students that go there and you can almost a lot of times tell what seminary somebody went to by the you know the way they respond to certain theological questions now that's you know obviously mm. there's exceptions but there's there's a lot of that so Zane Hodges had a huge impact on a lot of people at Dallas him and Charles Ryrie mm. and when you read Zane Hodges we've talked about him and Charles Ryrie in the last couple of days the that they would disagree with a lot of what you and Bill Hull wrote in your book and um mm. and and so. When did that I mean were you before you met Bill and before you guys talked about the discipleship gospel and wrote it were you more in line with that Zane Hodges uh, slash Charles Ryrie type of thinking and had a shift or were you always kind of going against it going this just doesn't sound right how how did you go you know into Dallas and stay in Dallas and come out with a kingdom gospel mentality is what I want to know.
2: (laughs) Mm. Mm. Yeah, I went into Dallas, you know, only being a believer for 18 months. I went into Dallas like a blank slate. So I I really didn't have any grid to think through about, you know, other than a a basic understanding of the gospel, I didn't really have a a grid to think through like a Zane Hodges grid or a Charles Ryrie grid. Um, But, but here's the thing about Dallas Seminary—they teach you how to study the scriptures and teach the scriptures—and and I'll never, I'll always, always be grateful for that because that was the foundation that got laid there. It wasn't anyone's particular theology. It was studying the scriptures and digging in and um, really seeking to see what what the, what does this mean, you know? Like uh, Dr. Hendricks used to teach us: What does this mean? How does this apply? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of came out of there with. Uh, a lot of mindset and and a lot of Dallas grid, but they taught me how to read the scriptures. And I I just remember, Doug, reading uh, Dr. Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, and going, I want to do this, and I want to do this for the rest of my life, and I have no idea how to do what he's talking about. And then I read um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, and and that book really was a turning point in another way because it really helped me understand, like, I didn't know exactly what Bonhoeffer was talking about when he was talking about costly grace, but I knew he was right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had the sense that he was right, but I didn't know what to do with it because I, I had never heard grace talked about like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so those big question marks um, that I had coming out of seminary, like, how do I make disciples... And what is what is this grace that I keep hearing about, which is costly, that I'm not? Re- it doesn't really fit with anything I've been taught or heard. Um, and so, those got me kind of started on a journey to figure out what the gospel is and how does that gospel end up producing Christ-like disciples?
0: Well, I, listen, I, I really appreciate. Like, I, I have a lot of friends that graduated from DTS, and and I have people that I've disagreed with theologically about you know who would have sided with more of a zane hodges or a um or a charles Ryrie, but they all believe what you believe that you you know that 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 the bible you know they were taught to study the bible there and they they love that and they their their primary calling is to exposit and You know, and so I found myself being sharpened by being around people that didn't necessarily agree with me all the time. And so going into these conversations made me want to dig deeper. So, and Robert Coleman, by the way, you mentioned it. I want to mention it again, the master plan of evangelism. If you've not read that book, you need to read it. It's not a long read. It's short, but very, very good. Robert Coleman, I got to spend some time with him, several different places and just he is boy such a thinker and and god just gave him that that book to write up and it was a really good book it influenced me as well as well as bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship uh so how did you meet bill hull uh ben how did you and bill get connected
2: yeah so um I, I had been pastoring at Cyprus for several years and I really was in, I, I have a, a great passion for preaching the gospel. Um, I have a really deep desire to make disciples. I had no idea really how to make disciples. I was never discipled intentionally myself. And so I, I feel like discipleship is not something you can learn in a classroom. You actually have, have to have it done to you. You know, it's like an apprenticeship almost. And until you're actually being discipled, you're never really going to know what that is and so i I was just i had read a couple of bill's books i'd read the disciple making pastor i just read uh his book conversion and discipleship and so i wanted to see if he would come to cyprus and do a seminar on disciple making because i just really wanted to pick his brain in between the seminar sessions and so he, he, I, I called him up and he picked up the phone, I couldn't believe it, and he said, Hello, this is Bill. And and I said, Well, th- hi, this is Ben. And we got to talking and then he ended up coming up and doing that seminar. And he said one thing, Doug, that blew me away and it actually brought all my questions about the gospel, all my questions about discipleship, it all brought it into focus for me. He said this, he said, The gospel you preach determines the disciples you make. Hmm. and And... No one had ever said it quite like that to me, but when he said that, a whole lot of alarm bells went off and I went, Okay, maybe the reason that I continue to um fail at making disciples I had attempted to make disciples and I could make a disciple, but I couldn't make uh, you know, second Timothy chapter 2 verse 2 disciple, a disciple who's making disciples who's making disciples, my disciples would stop and think that they'd finished a class, (laughs) and then they wouldn't carry on and disciple other people. And so I was determined to figure out how to become a a 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2 disciple maker, and Bill nailed it for me. He said, maybe it's because the gospel you're preaching isn't Jesus' kingdom gospel. And so that sent me and him on a journey, which ended up being this book. Of digging into the scriptures and seeking to determine what was the gospel that Jesus preached because the gospel that Jesus preached if you just read through the four New Testament Gospels it produced Christ-like bold in faith spirit-filled multiplying disciples and that's what we're after in the local church and so um, Jesus preached the kingdom gospel it produced Christ-like disciples who ended up uh, Acts chapter seventeen, I think, says they 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 turned the world upside down, and um, I, I I felt like a, a call to get back to that in my ministry here at Cyprus and become a disciple maker like that here at Cyprus. And so for the last seven years, that's what I've been attempting to do.
0: Well, I have so appreciated as we've been working through this over the last eight weeks, um, one of the one of the things that I I, I was mentored. Um, by um, Leighton Ford, who's Billy Graham's brother-in-law. And one of the things Leighton had us do was write out the gospel. I'd never, until I went through that, like, and that that was early in ministry, that was back in 96 for me. Uh, only a year and a half into ministry, but I was leading groups over to Russia. And what I was finding, uh, Ben, is we were going over there telling, we were using a lot of Campus Crusade stuff, or it's called Crew today, and these gospel booklets, these gospel presentation booklets, as much as you can say it was not about just a canned presentation, it, it, it was just canned presentations of propositional truths that we were asking people to pray a prayer and believe in and then assuring them they had salvation. And these were people that had never seen a Bible, never they, they didn't know who Jesus was, they had never heard the name Jesus, and were telling them, that they can be forgiven. Now I'm not saying God didn't use some of that, but I was very disturbed about going back three days later and going over the gospel and they didn't acknowledge any of it after we we just prayed with them three days earlier. And so writing out the gospel was very helpful and I appreciate y'all's definition. I wanna read it, the one that y'all pinned in the book again. The gospel is this. The kingdom of God has come through Jesus of Nazareth. He is Christ, the Messiah, the King, God's one and only Son. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and resurrected on the third day according to the Scriptures. In his great love and by his amazing grace, God our Father saves everyone who repents of their sin, believes the gospel, and follows Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. When King Jesus returns on the last day, the great day of judgment, everyone who followed him will enter the eternal kingdom of God. Now, that is a clear gospel definition. And, and to your credit in the book, you say, listen, there may be some other ways to say it, but it needs to contain these elements. And you laid out what those elements were. And that that is, took me a while to get to it. I, I really believed that I believed it, but unfortunately I gave a lot of bad gospel presentations to people over the years, not knowing any different. You know, I just was, like you said, I was giving what I was taught and my, my heart was to tell people about Jesus. And that's why I do believe if you're listening out there and you think, well, I didn't hear that gospel presentation. It's not to say that God can't use others. But, uh, but that is clear, and we have a responsibility to proclaim that. Could you speak just a little bit about the responsibility to give people a clear definition? Why is that important, Ben?
2: Well, I mean, just two scriptures off the top of my head. Um, 1 Corinthians fifteen three says, the gospel is of first importance so if anything is christian in christianity as a top priority is of first importance we're told right there that the gospel is it so it should be uh, being clear crystal clear on the gospel i think i think we talk a lot about the gospel a lot about it but we don't actually like ask what is it and so that's you know when i read first corinthians 15:3 and it's of first importance i, I just want to dig in and make sure that the gospel I'm preaching is Jesus' kingdom gospel, number one. And then you've got Romans one sixteen, which says um, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So not only is it of first importance, but the, the, this gospel is is what actually saves people. God uses the gospel to save people from um, sin, death, and hell. And um, so I, I think there are reasons for wanting to become clear on what the gospel is. But, Doug, I've got to tell you, like— I. I Part of this journey for me was really was realizing I'd been preaching a forgiveness only gospel and and coming to, but something wasn't right. I wasn't feeling good about it. And the gospel I was preaching was not producing, multiplying Christ like disciples. So I knew something in deep inside of me. It wasn't sitting right. And so getting back to the scriptures, and and asking, what was the gospel that Jesus preached? And there's three passages that I think make that really clear. Um, First, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, where Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel. So we know that this is a gospel passage. He comes proclaiming the gospel, and he heralded that the kingdom of God is near, repent, and believe in the gospel. So these are Jesus' own words when he is actually preaching the gospel. And so we have kingdom and repentance and belief uh, as three of those elements then you go to Mark chapter 8 where he downloads more of the gospel and again the word gospel is in the context of this passage in Mark chapter 8 verses 27 through 34 and that's where he downloads for the disciples for the very first time um, you know this is where Peter says you are the Christ so Jesus is the King and he begins telling them about his death and resurrection and so there we, we have uh, these other elements of the gospel come in. And then 1 Corinthians 15 chapter, uh, verses 1 through 5 confirms that those three elements from Mark chapter 8 are at the heart of the gospel. Um, and, and so we have these, these gospel passages. And so when I realized kind of what the gospel was that Jesus preached, I had to repent of preaching a, a forgiveness-only gospel and, and, and actually change, change my tune and actually ask myself, am I willing and courageous enough to start proclaiming the kingdom gospel of Jesus? Because the, at the heart of the kingdom gospel of Jesus, you've got a crucified Savior calling us to live a crucified life. Mm. And that doesn't sound like something that most people want to sign up for. Mm. So are you courageous enough to actually proclaim that kind of gospel? Um, because th- that kind of gospel is also a resurrected King calling us to live a resurrected life as well. So, um, yeah, it's been a very big journey for me over the last 10 years, Doug, and, and there's been a lot of uh, course correction and repentance in there for myself. But now it's, there's freedom as well.
0: Well, I am so grateful, uh, one, that God did that in your heart so you could articulate it <laughs> so guys like me and others could see it. I, I think I shared with you when I spoke to you a week or so ago um, that I was teaching up in Pittsburgh and a guy who had gone through one of the the Bonhoeffer uh, project cohorts um, said, "Where did you learn to teach that?" And and for me, I have I've had guys who they didn't articulate it the way you guys have, but it was there. There was a kingdom aspect. There was a repent aspect. There was a believe aspect on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it was there, and there was a "Follow Me." In fact, on my truck, I have "Follow Me" on my my uh, license plate. I have one of those license plate mm. things, and it says "Follow Me." And I'll tell you, Ben. Over the years, people have accused me of legalism for teaching "Follow Me." Do you get any of that when you call people to follow Jesus? Have you been accused of that as well?
2: Yeah, I get I, sometimes. I get some blank looks. Um from From people in our church or when I'm uh, speaking some other places, I get blank looks because people aren't really sure what to think um, of of proclaiming the proclamation of the kingdom they haven't heard that kingdom language used in association with the gospel and then the call to repent, believe, and follow um, I, I have had pushback Bill and I have had pushback on on people um, thinking that the call to follow Jesus is least a legalistic add-on to the gospel because all they have to do, all Jesus calls us to do is believe, but um, my, my question then is, well, how do we believe? Is that something that we do in our own strength or is that something we do by God's grace? because I think Jesus is the one who calls us to repent and believe and follow him, and everything he calls us to do he also empowers us to do and so I think it, again it not only calls us to back back to studying what is the gospel, but what are these key concepts like grace? Um, I I feel like we've got a, a, I mean, I've noticed it in my own life. I had such an off view of grace. I actually call call it (laughs) ungrace. It was a view where it kind of limited grace to conversion. So when I thought about grace, I only thought about when I got saved back in the day, 20, uh, 26 years ago, I wasn't thinking about, well, so it was limited to conversion. It was passive during discipleship. So how does how does grace actually work during discipleship? I didn't know, because I always thought about grace as being limited to conversion, and then it made it made uh, grace made sin lenient. It gave me an excuse, you know. People said, well, don't worry about it. We're saved by grace, so you don't really have to do anything. And I just go well. But hang on a second, if we're saved by grace, we're also empowered by grace to live the Christian life. And that's why I think it's so important when you come to passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, never to leave verse 10 off. Because 10 says we're not only saved by grace, but we're saved for good works that are empowered by grace. And And I think that's really, really important. So getting back to a biblical definition of what grace is and an understanding that everything Jesus has commanded us to do he also empowers us to do. He doesn't call us to do anything that He knows we can't do except by His grace. But if if we understand repentance as being by grace and belief as being by grace and following Jesus as being by grace, um, that changes everything, I think, for me. And that's where I think we can truly say, you know, it is by grace alone. And that is true, but it also has that grace has to work in me to respond in faith to Christ.
0: mm that's good that's really good well hey i wanted to let our listeners know that we're, if you're just tuning in you're listening to ben sobels who's the senior pastor at cypress church out in california and ben wrote um the discipleship gospel what jesus preached we must follow along with bill hull and you can get that book in a lot of places you can get it at amazon.com uh, you can get it at discipleship.org it is a great read uh, for helping you understand that the gospel you preach uh determines the gospel i mean the disciples you make and i think ben for me coming back to that that's and i'll get you to weigh in when we come back from the break but i just wonder if that's why we've been so impotent as a church in america is because we've preached a a different gospel. So, uh, stay tuned with me. Hang in there. We're going to be right back after the news. Hey, you're listening to SWAT radio. If you want to hear this or any past broadcast, you can go to www.swatradio.com. We'll be right back after the news with more Ben
1: Sobel. Yeah. It's not just you. A lot of people are wondering why so many big corporations are actively promoting ideas and values that their own customers don't support. And honestly, this is another reason MediShare is so attractive to people who don't want to use their own healthcare dollars to pay for things they don't believe in. MediShare is the refreshing alternative. They're a non ministry. It's a community of like-minded Christians helping each other live healthy lifestyles. There are more than 400,000 members now, and they save a lot, too. Most families save around $500 a month. And member satisfaction surveys consistently show They like it much more than health insurance. So for you, maybe it's time. Find out how you can not only save, but freely choose to be part of something you believe in. Here's the number you can call now 844 55 Bible. That's 844 55 Bible. 844 55 Bible.
0: Expect some delays because of a crash on I-10 westbound at the ramp from U.S. 301, the Baldwin exit. Also, there's a broken down vehicle on I-95 northbound before Dunn Avenue. And there's some roadway debris on I-95 southbound at State Road 9B. Partly cloudy tonight, low 78. Friday, mostly sunny and hot. High 98. From the Traffic and Weather Center,
1: I'm AJ.
2: Hey,
0: welcome back to SWAT Radio. It is Doug McCary of His Light Ministries. And SWAT Radio broadcasts every day live from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we broadcast here in the Jacksonville, Florida area uh, on The Truth, also up in South Georgia. And then we're in Meridian, Mississippi on WMOX and WMER. And then up in Virginia Beach on the Lighthouse up in the Chesapeake, Virginia area. And we also stream live through SWATradio.com. And I hope uh, you're listening today to Ben Sobles, if you just tuned in, uh, who wrote the Discipleship Gospel with Bill Hull. And, uh, Ben, thanks again for for joining on really kind of short notice. I appreciate you being willing to be, uh, you know, you talked about uh, Bill answering the phone. Uh, You took my call, too, and (laughs) kind of quick and was... Uh, able to move some stuff around to be on here. So I just want to express our gratitude to have you on here, uh, especially since we've been covering the book for the last uh, eight weeks. And again, you bring out in the book just really the truth of the gospel. And I made a statement before we went to the break about, I wonder if the reason that the church in America has had so little impact for the gospel is because of what you said, the gospel we preach determines the disciples we make, and we've been preaching this forgiveness-only gospel, which you said you know you were guilty of, I've been guilty of it. What does that produce? What kind of disciple does that produce, Ben?
2: Yeah, well, what what I saw it produce uh, in the congregations that I was a part of was passive church attendance-only disciples. So you preach a forgiveness only gospel and people think that they don't have to do anything really except attend church give a little bit of money and maybe serve once a week in at church or around the church and and that's that you're fulfilling your commitment to christ and um and so it was it was producing that kind of disciple but when you know jesus called his disciples he called them to renounce everything and surrender all they have and come follow him and and so there is a the complete surrender of our whole life to Christ as part of His gospel, and he didn't—he didn't leave it in the fine print. It wasn't something that he put in a legal agreement and just assume you wouldn't read. He—he mm-hmm. um, he made it the headline news. He talked. Mm-hmm. He preached it to the crowds, not just to his twelve disciples. And so, um, I think there's a really important aspect to that, which there's a reason why he ended up being crucified, um, because his his gospel was so counter. Um, everything, including the Gospels that the Pharisees were preaching at the time.
0: Yeah, you know, in the book, you bring out five different Gospels that have been promulgated throughout not only our country, but in the world. Um, The Forgiveness Only, the Consumer Gospel, and the Prosperity Gospel, people have a pretty Clear understanding of those that basically those are gospels. What's in it for me? Both either as a consumer or God's going to make me rich or healthy or wealthy. But the gospel in the left of the left or gospel of the right need a little clarification. Can you clarify what you meant by the gospel of of left or gospel of right? Kind of go through those real quick.
2: Yeah, I think I think um, they're different versions of a political gospel. Uh And I I, I do think if if you said, you know, if you did say that, you know, Christianity can get caught up with politics and that some of our gospel presentations are more influenced by politics than Christ, I I think people would get that. And so, um, you know, the the gospel of the left can begin looking like a social justice gospel. Um, The gospel of the right can be a, you know, we vote for Trump only gospel. Um, and so there's there's these different expressions of of progressive and conservative thought that on the extreme can end up influencing and changing the essence of what the gospel is really all about because the gospel is political it's radically political you know Jesus said my kingdom is not of this world that and that that he was the Christ and he was the Lord and so that was in direct opposition to the Caesar who was demanding to be called Lord so it's definitely political but not in the sense that I think um we can get caught up into today so i I think um the gospel of the left the gospel of the right can can begin getting into um conservative and liberal politics in some ways and making those those leanings influence our understanding of the gospel more than what they should
0: well and you could certainly attest to that's what's happened in the last few years Really, the last five or six years, right? I mean, in our country, I mean, uh, how we've kind of weaved in politics to the gospel itself or to, I would say, being identified as a Christian means that you're this political party. For some, for others, it's you're part of this uh, different political party. But, uh, yeah, I get that. Um, You know, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is I love the quote in the book uh, by C.H. Dodd. Which, you know, he said no. there was no confusion for the guy in the first century. And he says no Christian in the first century had any doubt what the gospel was. Uh, And and I would contend that um, if you go to persecuted countries, uh, they have no doubt what it is. Places like China, places like the Middle East, or, you know, um, places where they're being killed to trust Christ. Uh, unless they've been influenced more by America than some of the the people who passed down that faith in their countries. Um, But you wrote that in the book and you know, people that I I sent you an email from a, a listener who wrote to me about that. And he was highly influenced by another guy from Dallas. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday But I I was hoping you could weigh in on this. Have you ever heard of that theology before? Uh, I've never heard it, and I certainly would have not guessed it would have come from a a DTS grad that basically that Peter preached a Jewish theology uh, of a gospel to people in the New Testament where they had to have faith in works or faith that was proved by works. But Paul preached a different gospel to Gentiles where they just needed to believe, which you and I both know that's not true. But have you ever heard that before? Are you familiar with that guy that I sent, that, that quote from that guy?
2: I, I didn't get a chance to read that, Doug. No, I'm sorry. I didn't get to read it. But, I, I mean, I have heard that before, and there's a whole theology. You know, some people think that that Jesus didn't actually preach the gospel, that Paul was really the one who started preaching the gospel And so there's all sorts of weird theology there, but if you, if you study, if you study Peter's, uh, gospel message, spirit, first spirit-filled gospel message in Acts chapter 2, you will find the seven elements of Jesus' kingdom gospel in Acts chapter 2. You'll also find it in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, um, the introduction to his kind of magnum, magnum opus on the gospel. Um, you'll see, so you'll see Paul and Peter and they're they're preaching these 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 same elements that that Jesus preached and so I just I, so I'd have to say, well, show me in the text where you get that because what I see from Acts two and Romans one is both these apostles are preaching to different audiences maybe, but they're actually preaching the same gospel to all, everyone. Yeah,
0: I'd like to read the quote to you because I would like for you to respond to it if you didn't get to see it. Because again, this guy is, is out, he's written books, he's putting this out, and one of our listeners wrote about it to me. And so here's the quote. Most Christian churches spend the majority of their time in the Gospels. I would say 90% of the churches spend ninety percent of their time in these four books. And while Christians should read these scriptures, the gospels contain no Christianity. That may be shocking or true, but not one of Christianity, not one word of Christianity exists in the Gospels. They're all Jewish. They contain Jewish theology. And he says no one was known as a Christian inside the borders of Israel during the ministry of Jesus or before the salvation of Paul. So those who believed the gospel quote of the kingdom, that Jesus was the Messiah were known simply as followers of the way they were not Christians. Nothing in Jewish theology proclaims a heavenly kingdom. And the Jews had no hope of dying and going to heaven. Well, on face value, if you take even no, you don't even have to go into your book. That contradicts scripture, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> that, that the Jews didn't have a a hope of of uh, dying and and being in an afterlife with the Father based on faith. I mean, I, I, I didn't. Yeah,
2: this,
0: this, this, <laughs> weigh in on that.
2: Yeah, this, Oh well, I just I just think to say that there was no Christianity in the Gospels um that that was a very striking statement when you read that i was like wow that's that's a really strong statement because our faith isn't drawn to a particular time in history or dispensation it's actually drawn to the person of christ if your faith is in christ he is your king it doesn't matter what you call yourself whether you call yourself a follower of the way or a disciple or a. it doesn't matter what we call ourselves the defining aspect of being uh you know, a believer or a Christian or whatever you want to call us, um, is that we have faith in Christ. That's what saves us. And so to say there's no Christianity in the Gospels when Jesus is in the Gospels, I think that that presents all sorts of weird stuff (laughs) and causes you to start dividing, maybe wrongly dividing the Word of God instead of rightly dividing the Word of God. But I don't know this guy, I don't know where he's coming from, but that doesn't sound right to me.
0: Yeah, well, he, he came from DTS, he came out of DTS, and, and unfortunately, and you know this as well as I do, when somebody graduates from a, an institution like a DTS, and they put, that, they, they put that behind their name, unfortunately, a lot of people just, they don't do a lot of their own research, and they take these things at, at face value. Except they don't do this, the Berean thing and really look in the Scripture. So I just wondered, had you ever heard that he basically teaches that Peter and the apostles and Jesus preached a different gospel than Paul, and he he says that just outright. That it, and and how, there's only one gospel in there in the gospels and in the the other letters. There's just one gospel. That's I I, can, I don't know how you could say there's different gospels based on scripture
2: yeah that's that that's how i understand it doug is that there's one gospel it's the kingdom gospel of jesus and and the apostles preached that same gospel i mean if they might use different language so jesus used the language of disciples and discipleship in in the gospel like he talked about making disciples but paul talks about being a spiritual father and and bearing children and so he brings in, in the context of the church, more familial language. He's talking about the same thing, but using different language. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that's where I think if you start digging into Gospel passages and passages which unpack the Gospel, um, what Jesus is preaching in the Gospels to that Jewish audience, Peter is preaching in Jerusalem in Acts two and Paul is preaching to the Gentiles in Romans one and there's a consistency through all of it that I think is it's really striking when you start having the lenses to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, that those seven elements and you start checking into it. And I would even suggest that those seven the seven elements of the gospel that Jesus preached, you can actually find in Genesis chapter twenty two when Abraham's called to to sacrifice Isaac. Um, I think it's all there. So I think the gospel that Jesus is preaching, the gospels is actually deeply embedded in the Old Testament uh, all the way through. And so he's just articulating what has kind of been um, formed all throughout the revelation of the Old Testament.
0: Well, you know, one of the growing things uh, being out in our culture today is this idea of Jesus has done everything for me, so all I have to do is believe. I don't have to have a quiet time or spend time with him i'm free to do whatever i want that's what paul says and it it doesn't you know i i I do follow jesus because i believe in him but it has no impact on the way i live my life my life it doesn't change I, i i'm still me but i'm just now i believe in jesus and so i i'm i'm good for heaven how do you address that with people out there do you see that because that's a growing thing here on this side of the world Uh, i call it this side of the continent uh you know where people are especially among young people this this call to a jesus who makes no demands after you're in relationship with him do you do you see that out there in california as well
2: yeah i mean uh, you know i think i've lived it in in some ways and i I do think um there has to be a radical call back to understanding of what grace actually is i I have a suspicion that most of us aren't really we know that grace is supposed to be amazing and we talk a lot about how amazing grace is but i'm not really sure if we know what grace is how it works or why it is so amazing because living a, a you know a life that we think is Christian but not really being transformed or experiencing any change in our life or not really feeling like we have to do anything, that doesn't feel so amazing to me. Mm. And so I, you know, I think this callback to understanding what grace is, how it works, why it's so amazing is really, really important. And then it, it kind of that whole mentality when, when I was, when, when I kind of had that mentality myself, but then I kept reading the words of Jesus and, and if I just come back to the Great Commission, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Like Jesus is telling us to do stuff, very specific stuff there. And, and it feels like we call the Great Commission great. But then if we don't do it, it's not so great, right? So we shouldn't call it great if we're not doing it. Um, So it feels like to me Jesus is constantly calling us to do things uh, in the Scriptures, and it kind of negates everything he says if you say you don't have to be obedient. And so obedience becomes... I feel like people think that obedience is um, a burden, Doug, but like obedience is the pathway to transformation, you know, if when faith and obedience come together, that's what transforms our life because we see how faithful and good and powerful Christ is when we are obedient. So, that and if grace is what is empowering our obedience, which is a whole other discussion, um, that completely transforms my understanding of grace. If grace only saves me at conversion and doesn't do anything after that, then then. I can think that I don't have to do anything because grace saves me at my conversion but doesn't do anything else but if grace is meant to be empowering everything that I'm doing after conversion as well which I believe it is and and I I made a list of 20 things that grace does after conversion uh, from the New Testament and you know grace strengthens grace trains grace multiplies grace calls grace surpasses grace acts grace gives grace transforms all these how linked in with specific Bible verses And so to have uh, an adequate view of grace will lead to theology that says obedience isn't important.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. My wife had a plate in our house that says, yes, Lord, and we were talking about that plate because really you can't say no, Lord, can you? (laughs) I mean, like to any commands that he gives us. I mean, like you can't say those two words together. It's kind of an oxymoron, right? I mean, to say no to him if he's king no to him if he's ruling the kingdom and he gives you a command and that's why he says if you love me you'll what keep my commandments but today there's this teaching that says um you know it's it's you're adding legalism to it you're making it legalistic teaching a works-based salvation if you tell people after they follow christ there needs to be obedience and um I don't know. It's just it's 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 frustrating. Well, I want to talk just before we we finish here. We're in our last segment about the Bonhoeffer project for a second. You went through the Bonhoeffer project, a cohort, didn't you? Didn't you go through that?
2: Yeah. So after Bill and I, after I had Bill up here to have to do the seminar at Cyprus, um, he invited me to be part of a cohort. Uh, that next year in 2016 and so I went through that cohort and that that ended up being what that ended up being the first cohort um, that Bill led through the Bonhoeffer project and then I started leading cohorts myself the next year and and basically what that is it's it's but the Bonhoeffer is Bonhoeffer project is revolutionary in a, in a lot of ways it, it actually you you spend the first, it's a night it takes basically a year-long cohort you're meeting with people online or in person so there's freedom to, to, to do either one, but for the first three sessions, you basically, over the first three months, you're digging into what is the gospel and how do you define it and and how, why is that so important? And then for the next uh, nine sessions over the course of, of the rest of the year, you're really digging into, and how does that gospel influence my disciple-making practices? And so that really, to me, is where it gets, the the rubber meets the road, is like, what gospel am I proclaiming on Sunday morning as a pastor, and who are my men? Who are are the men in my church that I'm discipling? Who are the men in our community that I'm discipling, and seeking to equip them to become Christ-like, multiplying disciples? And so I know that you speak into a lot of uh, men's lives there, but... The question that I have for myself every year and I have for the guys that I disciple every year are who are your men? And I'm committed to discipling three men either from our church or in our community every year for the rest of my life. I'm just committed to it because I feel like if that, that's my obedience to Christ's call to make disciples. And, and so I've got a method that I use and um, all, all of the stuff that I'm doing now was born out of this year-long cohort um, that I did with the Bonhoeffer Project seven years ago.
0: Uh, well, I want to let people know how they can find out more. You can go to the Bonhoeffer Project That's T H E B O N H O E F F E R Project They have information about that. They have events. In fact, we have an event not too far from here in 2024 coming up um, called the 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 global the 2024 Global Conference 180. Uh, the Return to Disciple Making. It's going to be in Orlando March 4th through the 7th. And I want to let you know about that. That would probably be a good thing. Uh, you won't be coming to that, will you? Will you be coming down for that? Do you know?
2: I just heard about it, and, and you've put it on my radar screen, so it sounds like something I'd love to attend uh, <laughs> if we're able. So, yeah. man, that's that sounds awesome. To get to talk to you a little bit more about this stuff would be exciting for yeah, me.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, well, let's face it, uh, Ben. If we're really honest, it, is there a lot of conversations going on about this stuff right now? I don't. I mean, I haven't seen it's. It's. I don't know how you experience it, but a lot of times it falls It feels like pulling teeth to get people to really buy into the whole disciple making. Uh, you know, the Second Timothy two two. We should be about multiple generations spiritually building into others so they can build into others so they can build into others on down to the fourth and fifth generations. And like you said earlier, I think a lot of people are content to just share it with one and then not follow through with seeing that continue on. Right. I mean, so I, you kind of feel sometimes like a lone voice. That's why I was so encouraged when Hollis half came up to me in Pittsburgh and gave me this book. I came back immediately shared it with a couple of my SWAT guys here And uh, was just really excited to have you and Bill on this week and next to talk about it. And I just want you to know that you've got allies here on the East Coast (laughs) praying for you out there. I know it's probably not easy where you are, uh, but we're very thankful for you and what you do out there. And thankful for the book that you uh, wrote with Bill. Thank you for taking that time to do that. Uh,
2: Well, thanks for having me on, mate. And I think just one last thing that I'd say to speak into that, um, you know, for this conversation is they did a study. You can find it at multiplication dot org. But they did it the national study on disciple making in USA churches. It's the largest study of its kind. It was done in 2019 with over a thousand churches uh, across the United States, and they found that only five percent of the churches that they surveyed were. Um, making multiplying disciples and so i think in general we don't like talking about what we don't what we're not good at and so we you know and i think the reason we're not really good at four-generational disciple making is because we're really not sure how to make disciples and so i do think this is a discussion i love that you're having this discussion i think it's the most needed discussion in the american church today because the the discipleship issue Ends up being a gospel problem, but when you get the gospel right, you end up, when you're preaching a kingdom gospel, it produces Christ-like, transformed, multiplying disciples. And that's what we need for revival in the church in America today is, is a whole bunch of churches who are making four-generational disciples. And I guarantee you, if that happens, if we start counting that number instead of just church attendance and giving on Sundays, if we actually start counting the amount of four-generational disciple makers in our church, uh, it could change a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, and that I, I want to point out that site again. It's called multiplication.org, and they're actually yeah. part, part of the group that's uh, doing the thing in Orlando, the One Eighty down there, the Return to Disciple Making. Uh, they're part of that particular conference that's coming up in March of twenty twenty four. Well, uh, you know, Ben, we are, we're we're out of time, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, one last thing for the guy out there um, who goes, you know what, I've read books on discipleship. Um, and and I you know, I, I just I can't I, I'm struggling to make a disciple. Where do I start? Where's the first place? Where where do you direct that guy who's going, I wanna do it, I just don't even know how to begin. Where what's the first place you're gonna direct him?
2: Yeah, there's no easy place, no easy no, there's no easy method to figure out how to make disciples. You've just got to do it. And that's why I think the Bonhoeffer Project, whether you're a pastor or a lay leader or whoever you are, um, that's why I think it's such a transformative experience because it's not just like a class or read this book. It's actually a process of discipleship that you experience yourself. And it gets you thinking and gives you time to think about what does it actually look like for me to make disciples in my church now with the people that i attend church with with the people in my own community so to give yourself a year to go through that and really process through that at a deep level um it's not like i'm not going to i i've read all the books i've gone to all the conferences and i walked away of not being changed but actually going through the bonhoeffer project was what was transformative to me because it actually gave me the time for Jesus to show me how he wanted me to obey his command to make the cycles.
0: Well, well, thank you that the Bonhoeffer project again,
1: T H E B O N H O E F F E R project.com. Again,